tonight we're going to look at how it all began, at least from a, bi a biblical perspective. Um, I put the, the logo up the top there just to remind us that this is, a, this is an adventure, this is a journey of discovery, and you don't have to go out uh, as an astronaut in order to have an adventure or to discover. It's available to us too to be searchers after things, and certainly for me, seeking after truth for the largest part of my life has been uh, fantastic and rewarded, I've felt, through the years that I've done it. And particularly when it comes to the subject that we're doing tonight. So we'll move on through to that. That's the, that's the, the, the shrugging man uh, that is the logo for the Way Up course that was divided. I mean, a, a guy who was a cartoonist did that for me about 20, 20 plus years ago. Uh, but it well expresses, really, the sort of sense that we have on this course that you don't have to have made your mind up. I mean, we hope as you go through, things will come clearer, but you certainly don't have to start with everything sorted out in your head. The one that we're looking at tonight, then, is the how did it all begin, as we've already said. And we're going to try and put together a creation model we're going to try and see if you can make a cohesive um, pattern and plan for the beginning of all things from the Bible text. Now obviously there will be many in our culture who would laugh to scorn the very idea of it, but I'm hoping as we work through you'll think, well actually that, that does make sense. When Debbie and I first came across some of this information about 30 years ago, I have to say it completely revolutionised our lives. We were already Christians, but it completely changed our perspective on things. So I'm hoping that it might even do that for you tonight. So we're going to read, uh, to start with, the first few verses of the Bible, probably the best known verses. Uh, if you haven't got a Bible, don't worry about that. You can follow with me. If you have got one, it will be quite easy to find. I promise that. So Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Well, that will do us. And that will set the agenda, really, for this evening. And that is the heart of the model that I would like to bring. The key, I, I would suggest to you, is in the sky. It's interesting that Tim Peake mentioned that in his interview, when you look down upon the earth, this very thin layer of atmosphere around the earth. You can see that there in that picture that protects us and looks after us and everything else. The key, I believe, is in the sky, and the key for how God created the earth in the beginning is in the sky. Now, we hear a lot now about the greenhouse effect, so in a way that is probably easier for us now than has ever been before, we can understand something of that. Probably not sure that we understand a lot of it. Generally, we hear the greenhouse effect as a negative effect. But actually, we could, life on this planet would not, would not survive without the greenhouse effect. 
Uh, we do live in a greenhouse, albeit it's not perfect, there are, you know, problems with it, etc., etc. Um, but uh, that, this, this was downloaded from some university website somewhere, and that gives an idea of how the greenhouse effect works. The, the sun's heat comes in, 51% of the sun's heat is soaked up and absorbed by the earth and making everything grow and everything else. 20% is scattered and reflected by the clouds and never gets down to the earth. Another 19% is absorbed by the clouds and the atmosphere. I'm not, you know, there's a little bit of a difference between those two, but you, you get that. So you're already getting to most of the sun's heat is already taken care of. 6% never gets through at all, but is, is scattered by the sort of mirror effect of the atmosphere around. And 4% is reflected by the surface to go back up. And that's what forms greenhouse gases. I mean, it's the carbon dioxide thought to be in the atmosphere that does that. Not 100% sure about that. There is only 0.03% of carbon dioxide in the whole atmosphere. So when you think of that, it's three hundredths of 1% of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So if you're going to increase that by a lot, it's not going to be very much, is it? It's very difficult to see how that can have such a profound effect. Anyway, I'm not going to get on that tonight, but you can see that's how it works. A little bit of a change in those figures and a difference in the kind of greenhouse effect around and you could get a very different atmosphere that we live in. My point tonight is that when God first created the earth, he created it with an original greenhouse that was perfect. The earth's greenhouse today is not perfect. We know it's not and whatever it may have done in terms of warming, you've got extremes of temperature, cold and heat and all kinds of things within the earth. But supposing in the beginning God created an original atmosphere that was a perfect greenhouse. A greenhouse is not normally a thing that you put your plants in to die. A greenhouse is a protected environment. It's got the glass around it, you work out the ventilation, you get the system right so that your plants will flourish in a greenhouse. God created the earth with an original greenhouse that was perfect and was a perfect environment in which everything was able to flourish. He did this by using the water. We're told in Genesis 1.1 that in the beginning the planet was covered with water. The whole planet, there was water everywhere, there was no land even showing at that point that God then separated the waters from the waters and put one lot of water above the sky and one lot of water forming the seas under the sky. So there's a kind of a water sandwich with the atmosphere in the middle. Now, I mean, obviously, it couldn't have been slopping around wet water high up in the sky. It would have to be in a vapour form. But certainly some scientists have said that's perfectly possible. Uh, water vapour in a vapour form is completely colourless. You can't see it. It's lighter than air. It would float above the canopy of the earth and it's possible to imagine that God could create an earth where it is layered. I mean, the earth's atmosphere is already layered. We've got ozone layers. We've got, um, we've got ionised layers. We've got sort of magnetic field layers. There's all sorts of protective layers around the earth and there may even be some that we don't know about. So supposing in the beginning there was a water layer around the atmosphere of the earth acting like a, a kind of a, a, a greenhouse effect. Now it wouldn't have been like a, a, a fat blue ring around the earth in that way. I just did that to try and illustrate it. But such a thing would have a very interesting effects. I mean obviously this is a model, Nobody, we haven't seen it. We only know from evidence that we've got that such a thing could have happened. But such a canopy around the planet's atmosphere would have been completely colourless. It wouldn't have shown. It wouldn't have been like cloudy, 
but it would have absorbed the sun's heat and slowly warmed around the circumference of the Earth, forming a kind of thermal blanket around the Earth, evening out the temperatures. So at the equator, where the sun strikes directly, you'll know that the equator is full of deserts and very hot countries and the tropics and everything else, where the sun goes directly through, that would have cooled down because the sun's heat would have been dissipated, spread around. The northern and southern latitudes that get cooler would have been warmer. So the whole Earth would have been of a more even, comfortable temperature, not the kind of extremes that we have today. So as we said at the beginning, the key is in the sky. A different kind of an atmospheric covering around the Earth could create a completely different atmosphere upon the Earth. So this is what I'm suggesting to you. The original plan then was a designed greenhouse effect. Just as we've still got a greenhouse effect now, but it's deteriorated from what it was in the beginning. In the beginning, it was a perfect one. The, the canopy that, uh, that formed that was also part of the design. There is also a powerful magnetic field. I mean, it's not talked about a lot, but the magnetic field around the Earth is decaying exponentially which means that a lot more cosmic rays and harmful stuff from the universe are hitting us. It may well be why skin cancer is becoming more of a danger now than it's ever been before. It may be. So in the beginning there was a full magnetic field around the Earth. There would have been an ozone layer, which of course there still is, even though it's got a few holes in it and so on. So that would be the kind of scenario that I'm proposing. Now the effects of that would be, if you had a greenhouse effect, you would, I'm suggesting, you would have had a perfect climate. Secondly, you would have had a high pressure climate, a high pressure environment. I'll try and explain that as we go along. Uh, thirdly, you would have had complete and total protection from cosmic rays. And fourthly, you would have had protection from UV rays. So in short, the Earth in the beginning could have been, and I'm suggesting it was, paradise it would have been a perfect environment. Okay, so we're going to look at those one by one. First of all then, a perfect climate. Uh, if you've got this vapour canopy spreading and uh, the heat all the way around the earth, then of course you would not have deserts uh, in the centre of the earth and you would not have ice caps at the poles. You would have everything considerably more evenly spread around. The whole earth would be temperate to warm and it, interestingly there is some research that actually confirms that in the past. And when you look at all the pictures of ancient world with dinosaurs slopping about you find that they're often slopping about in warm tropical environments. Because they don't always put together the fact that you can find those dinosaurs from quite high latitudes where today they couldn't even live at all. Uh, so an even temperature, no deserts, no ice caps, everywhere warm and comfortable. Of course there is a problem there without the variation in temperature that you get in the different atmospheric conditions, you would get much less wind. Um, it's very interesting, somebody did an experiment on the television uh, where they were looking at the effect of the hot air rising around the equator. As the hot air rises at the equator, it sucks in air from the northern and southern hemispheres and then that heats up 
and then it sucks in more cold air and that heats up. As it heats up, it cools up as it goes up and then tumbles around so that the whole planet's atmosphere has got these huge convection currents swirling around and that's what carries our weather. As the Earth spins around, they've got these going this way, the Earth's going that way, and so they start spiralling it into circles. So you get cyclones and anticyclones, which we get on the weather maps. So our weather is actually caused by the combination of the Earth's spin and the disparity between the equator and the poles. If you lose that disparity, you lose a lot of the weather. You don't get the cyclones, the anticyclones, you certainly don't get storms, hurricanes and other violent weather effects that we would be familiar with today. People call them natural disasters. I would suggest to you they're not natural at all. They were not there in the beginning. The, the early Earth, as God created, didn't have all that stuff going on. Of course, there is a downside to all this. If you don't have wind taking the air off the seas and dropping, you know, gathering up the clouds and dropping the rain upon the land, you don't get rain. However, uh, it's very interesting. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5, it suggests that there was a time, it doesn't say for how long, uh, when no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So there's an implication that for a period at least, in the beginning, water came from underneath up, like springs or like a mist, and watered the whole face of the ground. That's very interesting because as it is, rain doesn't water the whole face of the ground. Rain waters the edges of the continents, which is why many of the centres of the continents are dry and barren and deserts. Half of the Earth's land is unproductive and not even useful for anything because it doesn't get any rain. So you have to say that the rain cycle that we now have is not a very good way of watering the earth. Supposing this is not the original plan. Supposing in the beginning the rain came from under the earth, from streams, from subterranean sources, and driven perhaps by the, the heat of the earth's interior, watered the whole face of the ground. So everywhere was well watered and fertile, and what's more, because there were no clouds coming off the oceans, there were not a lot of clouds, so it was sunshine. Maybe an odd white fluffy one here and there, but we're talking paradise. We're talking about a perfect climate. We're talking about a world where, where it would have been sunny all day and then you've got uh, moisture coming up from the earth and watering it. I fancy that in my garden. I don't know about anybody else. So permanent sunshine, enough water for everything and so on. Well, is there evidence? There is evidence. I mean, those, uh, those, uh, those are petrified tree trunks. Um, what's interesting is that they're, they're found in the Sahara. The Sahara is full of old petrified trees, trees that once grew there. Some of them are huge. I mean, this was actually on a website, an Egyptian website, that is selling petrified wood. So some bright spark is going out into, into the desert of the Sahara and pick it up. The, I mean, it's jolly heavy, petrified wood. It's wood, for those that are not sure, that's been turned to stone. Uh, so through geological action over the years, these tree trunks that were left lying at the end of the flood are, are slowly um, being turned to rock. And then be, I don't know what you do with a petrified tree, but there you go, there, there they are. Uh, here's another picture which is quite interesting. Again, this is another petrified tree, and uh, this is in Antarctica. 
Um, I, I looked this up just this afternoon on the web, really, to get a picture that I wanted, because I'd heard that in the, I think it was about the 1960s, they had a geophysical survey of Antarctica, and they discovered for the first time the fossilised remains of beech forests. Now, there is no way that beech trees would grow in the Antarctic. There are no trees in the Antarctic today. There are no live trees at all. The ice is a mile thick at the shallowest point. Nothing grows there at all. Once it did. Once in the Sahara, it did. I mean, it's interesting that you've got all this evidence that is there just to see. The trees, the Antarctic. Uh, in Spitsbergen, in the Arctic Circle, they found loads of dinosaur fossils encased in the, in the strata there. This is in the Arctic Circle. Uh, in, in Sahara, there are the remains, that the beds of ancient rivers that flowed there. So there is evidence that the world that we now live on was once completely different, and clues that it could well have been much more evenly spread. The Sahara was not always a desert, and the Antarctic and the Arctic were not always ice fields. So what I'm putting to you is that once upon a time in the world, there was a perfect paradise environment. Secondly, it was also a high-pressure environment. Now this I've only come across more recently, but it's, all the, it's very interesting for that. The fact that you've got a vapour canopy, I mean, as you know, the air that we breathe has weight. Do you know that? All that air pushing down on you has weight. They say that at sea level, the weight is about 15 pounds per square inch. So in every part of your body, you've got 15 pounds. Actually, if you didn't have air inside you pushing out, it would crush you. That's a weird thing to think, isn't it? That the atmosphere that we live in could crush you. But if you then add on to that a vapour canopy, uh, a water vapour canopy around, that adds to the weight. So it's not difficult to see that actually atmospheric pressure at sea level in this kind of scenario that we're picturing would have been somewhat higher than the 15 pound per square inch that we currently have. Now that has a lot of implications. First of all, as we put up there, it gives maximum availability of both oxygen and carbon dioxide. In other words, whatever is in the air, because it's higher pressure, has greater availability. It's more available for our bodies to use. Uh, it, it's more available for muscles. It's a bit like, if, if you take the other extreme, if you go up the top of a mountain, say Mount Everest, the air is so thin you can hardly breathe. You have a job to walk up the mountain. You Probably some of us have a job to even survive. Now, by the same standard, if you go deeper and you had higher pressure, the opposite effect, it will be that much easier to breathe. There will be much more oxygen available to you. There would also be more carbon dioxide available for plants to grow. So that it would hugely increase fitness and, uh, and, and fertility in both animals and plants. And, what, and we find, in fact, that the evidence is of the ancient world that there was luxuriant growth. Many of the species and so on that we, that we find the fossils of were much bigger. Some of the trees were huge uh, in, the, in the early world as it was. Nobody's actually come up with a particular answer for that. But of course the Bible says that in the beginning it was a vegetarian world. That's how there was enough food for everybody. That's how it sustained so many huge creatures. I mean dinosaurs, many of them were vegetarian animals, had to have plenty of food in order to live on. I suspect that both the, the quantity and the quality of food available then was much higher. There was much more protein in it. 
Today it'd be much more, it's, you know, we can do it in the Western world, but it's more difficult in the rest of the world to be a complete vegetarian because, of course, you need the protein. You've got to get it from somewhere. Um, so luxuriant growth would have been there. There would have also been a healing atmosphere. There is indications that a high-pressure environment actually is healthier for us. We'll look at all these in a minute. The flight of larger creatures would also become possible because the air is thicker. And we have fossil evidence that some of the creatures were much larger, some of the flying creatures. And every creature could actually grow bigger. So all of this there is evidence for. First of all then, luxuriant growth. This is a, a Japanese researcher who is, is dead now and I haven't been able to get any of his pictures on the thing apart from this one. Um, his name is Dr. Dei Mori and he did experiments with tomato plants. That, you believe it or not, that is a, that is a tomato plant there. And, but he had it in a particular environment. It was a high pressure, so he was obviously pursuing a thesis that he had. So he put it in a high pressure environment with UV shaded, so it was no ultraviolet rays coming into it. And these tomato, that was one tomato plant there. Uh, so it's not a good picture. You can just see, uh, there's a person down there, do you see that? Uh, so the sort of the tomato plant towering over that, that person there. And uh, the, the, the tomato, it's one plant grew to 30 foot high and 60 foot across. You would need quite a lot of bamboo canes, I suspect, to hold that up. We have a bit of a job keeping up our little minute ones, but there you go. Um, the t that particular plant lasted for four years and uh, in six months produced 15,000 tomatoes. How would it do that? Well, it would do that because effectively there's a very high carbon dioxide availability in a high-pressure environment. And so without changing the balance between CO2 and oxygen, you, you immediately make a phenomenal growth environment there. There's also evidence that comes from the present world. I mean, that there is the Jordan Valley. You'll probably know that the Jordan Valley is the deepest cleft on the Earth's surface. At 400 metres below sea level, something like 1,000 plus feet uh, below sea level, it, it is, as I say, it's the deepest part on the earth. And there's research coming out of that now where they're saying that if they can get enough water and irrigation for it, uh, then everything grows like a train. So Jordan Valley, higher pressure, because of course it's one, it's 1,000 feet deeper, yeah, there's more air above, so it's actually higher pressure. So, you know, it's a way to get a normal sort of high-pressure environment on the Earth. It's not huge high pressure, but it's high pressure. With irrigation, there is massive growth. Stuff grows like crazy in the Jordan Valley. Interesting. So you can imagine what it would have been like in an original world that God created with perfect weather, plenty of moisture, high-pressure environment. It's what you dream about for your garden. There it was. Also, it would have been healthier for people and everything. Uh, that there, if you don't recognise that, is a hyperbaric hospital. Uh, I found that one in Australia, and you can see the people have got little space helmets beside them, uh, which I, I don't know whether they put them on for so many hours a, a day or whatever, um, but there's been research over a period of time now that suggests, I mean, trouble is normally you get in a high-pressure environment, it's quite expensive to do. You've got to get in a cylinder and, you know, pump it up and that kind of thing. They've obviously managed to do something here in order to do that. And uh, the people, they, they, they had a whole load of the medical benefits of it, many of which I was not able to pronounce. So I summarised them in a few simple things. First of all, they said it's much faster healing of bone and flesh. So wounds and difficulties and things like that heal much quicker because of the oxygen. 
that is available there. Secondly, it helps with serious poisons. It helps to bring cleansing to the blood. And uh, th thirdly, it cleans and renews the blood, etc., etc. I can't remember all of them, but I just put down a bit of a sort of a summary there. What about larger creatures? Well, <coughs> they, uh, they have got fossil remains of pterosaurs, pterodactyls, uh, that have got a 40-foot wingspan. Now, a 40-foot wingspan is what? I mean, that is, that is big, isn't it? That's, that's not the full length of this building right to the very back, but it's a pretty good chunk of it. it very difficult to imagine uh, a creature with that amount of wingspan. The, the largest birds that we have today are not even half that, and they cannot easily get off the ground. I mean, most of the largest birds have to get to a high place and then glide off the top and get back to a high place because the air is too thin for them, from what it once would have been. How would you support a creature with a 40-foot wing? I haven't seen any scientists addressing this. I mean, very interesting to know what they have to say. But for me, the biblical scenario of a completely different atmospheric environment completely fits with it. Uh, this here is a, um, a, a dragonfly uh, again, it's a model made of a fossil. And uh, they're not uncommon in the fossil record. That's a dragonfly with something like a two-foot wingspan. Again, creatures like that today are too big. There is a kind of an optimum size that insects can get. You might be glad about that. You might not think it paradise to have dragonflies with a two-foot wingspan. But as long as they're not meat eaters, we're probably okay. Uh, but certainly it indicates a different environment, a thicker air environment. See what we're saying? So it does, it's not, this is not loony, it totally makes sense. Many other creatures too. I, I looked up on the internet um, uh, some pictures of fossilised giant creatures. That's, we got an original thing on a BBC um, uh, thing showing some of them. Again, nobody tries to sort out why. You know, how have we evolved from these big creatures to little ones now? That doesn't sound like evolution to me. Sounds like going downhill again, doesn't it? Uh, although, no, size is not everything. Uh, but that there is a, a, an ape that is a, a fossilised ape that's 10 foot tall. Uh, that's a bear that is 13 foot tall if it stood up on its hind legs. I mean, these, are, these obviously, they've, they've made models of these for illustration. I didn't want to show you a load of bones. It wouldn't make a lot of, it wouldn't be very interesting. That is a crocodile that is 37 foot long. I suppose you wouldn't call it a crocodile. You'd probably call it something else. So, I mean, all of these are in museums and, and natural history places all over the world in different places. That's a penguin that is six foot tall. Would you want to meet a penguin six foot tall? Well... Probably better than a crocodile, 37 foot long, I suppose, really. Um, th that one's a, a toad, uh, 18 inches long. Uh, and that one is a, a, a kind of tortoise, I suppose it's a, a, t a turtle, uh, 13 foot long. So there's a pretty, there's pretty general evidence that not all creatures, but there were certainly numbers of creatures that were considering considerably larger. The genetic richness that we talked about last week, that every creature has its inheritance, get great variety in size and shape, as it still does. You know, you could, if you breed dogs, you can get little dogs and big dogs. You can get little tiny toy ones, you can get whopping great big ones. You know, so it's amazing the variations you can get in the genes. But generally, the atmosphere puts a limit on it. There are certain factors like oxygen availability, pressure and everything else that put a lid on it and make everything that much a little bit smaller.
The dinosaurs were part of that, but they're not the only thing. You know, they're just a part of it. The largest dinosaur has been estimated to be 120 feet long and weighing over 100 tons. Now you think an elephant, which is the largest land mammal I think that we have on Earth at the moment, African elephant, weighs a male, weighs about six tons. They're not in the same league, are they? And, and elephants have trouble sleeping. You know, if they lie down, the weight of their inner organs all press on one another and they get uncomfortable with it. I wouldn't say it actually kills them, but they're certainly uncomfortable. So there's evidence that something has happened to the fabric of creatures that makes this kind of creature unsustainable today. We couldn't have one that large unless it was in water. Whales are the only things that have managed to stay big because they're supported in water, but the atmosphere can no longer support such huge creatures. There's a, I think that's a thigh bone uh, of a dinosaur there, and you can see that by, beside those two guys. There is even evidence that people could be bigger. They weren't all bigger, but there were some that were. That's interesting, that was in a railway siding uh, taken in the 19th century uh, of a guy in what looks, I suppose, like a coffin. Um, and uh, looking at him by the side of that railway thing, he could be 12 to 14 foot tall. Now, I mean, the Bible speaks of giants, and of course so do many of the mythologies of many of the peoples of the earth speak of giant, giant people in the past. So you have to say, well, you know, I just thought that was a whole load of rubbish. You've got to say, well, maybe it's not. It's certainly viable in that kind of a high-pressure environment. Here's a guy who's uh, got a museum of, of giant things, and, uh, well, I mean, you can read that up there for yourself. Uh, this giant stood 14 to 16 foot tall. That, he was, he's actually a modeler for museums. He takes the original bones and things and makes a model of them so that they can then put the, you know, the original away in a drawer somewhere and replace it with the model so that people can, you know, so otherwise it deteriorates. And he, he said he's made loads of these sorts of things. This one would have been 14 to 16 feet tall with 20 to 22 inch feet. Um, and interestingly, you see, the biblical record in Deuteronomy, this is after the flood, talks about Og, the king of Bashan, that has a bed that's 14 foot long and 6 foot wide. Which is not completely incredible. So the, it certainly seems possible, while not all people were giants, some certainly were. There was the capacity within the human genome. I mean, we know that the human genome can produce pygmies and very small people. It can also produce large people at all. But, but it needs the kind of atmospheric support for that to happen. They need the kind of muscular strength that they can do. It may well be why they were able to do some of the ancient monuments, the pyramids and things like that, that we really have a problem with doing. Because they were just bigger and stronger, miles more than we are today. Okay, final, I think I'm nearly on the final bit of this, then we're going to move on. Uh, there would also have been protection uh, from a number of layers around it. There would have been shielding from cosmic rays, there would have been protection from UV rays, uh, so that there would be little or no genetic damage, uh, cancers, etc. in the first world. It was a protected paradise. It was a perfect environment. And interestingly enough, the Bible indicates that before the flood, particularly, the lifespans were considerably longer than they were after. I mean, there's a graph uh, of, the, um, of the lifespans. You'll see that there is one, uh, there's one short one there. That's Enoch. 
And the Bible says he didn't die, but God took him to be with himself. So he's a bit of an odd one. But all the others are up in the 900-year mark in terms of age until you get to Noah and the flood, and you'll notice that the graph immediately then starts to plummet. Noah's son, Noah lived to be 950 years old, but he was the last of an age. Uh, his sons made only about five, six hundred years, I can't remember offhand, it's something in that thing. And then, uh, then it steadily goes downwards over the generations since, until you get to Abraham, who was about 180, uh, Moses, who was 120, but he was quite long-lived, and then the Bible says in the Psalms that the, the length of a man's span is between 70 and 80. And actually there is no biological reason why we couldn't live. Our bodies renew themselves. You know what I mean? It's just that all of us in our cells have got little end stops that when we've multiplied a number of times, switches off and says, come in number 53, your time is up. But without that there, you know what I mean? That doesn't have to be there. Without that there, there is no reason why we couldn't have lived forever, really. And certainly the early men looked like they were. And in the memory of the race, they will look back, as, as we said the other week, as the great heroes because they lived uh, such long... I mean, think of the wisdom that you've gained if you had a thousand years. You'd either be very wise or very stupid, I suppose, wouldn't you? Have <laughs> lived a thousand years. Okay, so to summarise there, the earth was a paradise. There was perfect weather, luxuriant growth, plentiful food, no shortage of anything, vegetarian world, no seasons. Now, the Bible doesn't quite say this, although as we'll see, it does say later on that the seasons appear, but I suspect that it would have been very difficult to sustain the earth as a paradise if you had winter. Apart from a few favoured places on the earth, um, you would have to start storing your food almost as soon as you'd started. You can't grow anything in winter, so you would have to have an, an earth that was vertical in its axis. I suspect that the flood shifted it. And so after the flood, the seasons appear. So in the beginning, there were not even any seasons. So you've got the combination of, of a year, constant temperatures all over the earth, and because of the vapour canopy, the spread of those temperatures to a warm and pleasant environment for everybody. Healing, protected environment, larger fauna and flora. Okay. And then it all went wrong. Uh, the Bible says that there was a, a catastrophic judgment. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go into the details of that, why God did that, um, except to say that it did happen. And the impact of that is everywhere uh, um, available on the earth. It says, if I could read the verses from Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 to 12, that the water came from two directions. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. The water came from two directions. It came from underneath the earth. The, the, the fountains of the great deep burst forth. There would have been massive cataclysmic activity seismic, earthquakes, volcanic, mountain building, huge uh, upset in the earth, and then simultaneously uh, the, wa the water came from above when it rained upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So torrents of rain fell. That was the vapour canopy that God had placed around the earth. So really, as far as the Bible, as far as I can understand the Bible, the flood was the end of an epoch. 
It was the end of paradise as we knew it. It was still pretty good, but it was considerably changed from what it had been. The earth then reverts to its original form, according to verse 20 and 23. Every living thing, no, sorry, the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind and everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died and every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that moved along the ground, the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. So says the Bible. The earth that began, you'll remember, as a water-covered planet. There was water everywhere and it reverts to being what it had been. The water then is brought back up from underneath and falls down from above and reverts to what it was. And interestingly enough, there are indications of this uh, pretty dr drastic cataclysm uh, recorded in the Bible. It doesn't actually say so in so many words, but in Genesis 8, uh, chapter 1, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. I don't believe that was just a little breeze. I believe it was pretty violent winds. The earth were, had to rebalance from this. Suddenly the vapour canopy had gone. Uh, the earth's atmosphere was plunged into instability and huge winds blew over the earth, so such that they could see it. It may well be at this time that the Ice Age uh, began. I mean, the thing is, it's very hard to make an Ice Age. You, you don't just need cold, you need, warmth, you need warm water and cold air. That's what you need. Uh, uh, I mean, Antarctica is, is technically a desert. There is less precipitation in the Antarctic than there is in the Sahara Desert. You're two inches a year if you're lucky. I mean, obviously it falls as snow, but that's because it's so cold, there's no moisture in the air. that nothing evaporates, so there's nothing to fall down. So it's just kind of, you know, you get massive blizzards, but they're caused by the snow that's on the ground being whipped up by the huge winds that sweep over it. But actually stuff falling, there's very little stuff that falls. So how do you get an ice age? How do you get massive glaciers? How do you get an ice age that comes down pretty much as far as we are? You know, right across the UK, right until just above London, I think, uh, was, the, was the final edge of the glaciers that formed in the Ice Age. How would you get ice like that uh, all over the Northern Hemisphere, particularly, not so much in the Southern Hemisphere, how would you get those kinds of ice sheets? You would need warm water that is evaporating, and then cold air that freezes it so it comes down to snow. You would need very particular climactic conditions that, as far as I can see, can, could only have been duplicated by the scenario of the flood where the earth plunged from being a warm, luxuriant atmosphere to being suddenly cold atmosphere in which you got this massive extreme of temperature. So the water then would have been absorbed in the ice caps and slowly that would have contributed to the, to the seas going down. Some of it, of course, would have soaked away back underground, uh, but the earth uh, is permanently waterlogged. In fact, if you were to look at a map of the oceans of the world, you would find that originally the coastlines of most of the continents went out quite a lot further. Quite a lot of the earth is still covered with water that once wasn't. There are loads of buried cities and buried human stuff 
uh, that were covered by the oceans. Things that, it's thought that at the end of the flood there were land bridges all over the earth so that as animals then began to spread and multiply they were able to spread to all the different continents of the earth and repopulate it as did men. There were still flood puddles um, you know, until quite recently, there are still some in Russia and the central there that were left over. There's one, I think, Lake Titicaca in the Andes um, Mountains. It's fresh water, water high up in the Andes, but it's slowly evaporating and going. It's the leftover of a flood that left the whole earth covered and inundated. And so it's still kind of soaking away now. There would also have been extremes of temperature and this is where we get the reference to the seasons where God says to Noah, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So, I mean, some believe, me included, that this is not just a promise of God's faithfulness for the future but as an indication that the earth will now be different that there will be seasons, there will be extremes, there will be summer, there will be winter. The earth has shifted. I mean, it's interesting that the Japanese tsunami, you remember some years ago, we saw, I mean, I saw the things unfolding on the television, it actually shifted the earth's magnetic field by six inches. This is just one catastrophe actually shifted the axis of the earth. You can imagine what a massive global um, catastrophe would have done to the Earth's axis and left it changed from what it had originally been. Anyway, there seems to be an indication uh, that, the, that the Earth's um, uh, axis changed and seasons then came. In Genesis 9 and verse 2, this is what God says, The fear and the dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the Earth and all the birds of the air, and upon every creature that moves upon the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea, and they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. And why did God do that? Well, the answer why God did that was because the earth has now become hostile. Green stuff will not grow as well as it once did. It seems obvious to me. You know, God didn't change his mind. He never created the animals for us to eat them, but necess necessarily in a fallen world, without that, many peoples of the world would not get enough protein, would suffer with malnutrition. So it doesn't mean to say you have to eat meat, and if you're a vegetarian, be, be happy. But if you have a burger, also be happy. It's okay. You have permission. It's now that the world has changed. And uh, permission to eat meat is given here. The rainbow, of course, is now given as the sign. In verse 13 of chapter 9, just after the record of the flood, he says, I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring clouds over the earth, the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you. Now, you couldn't, you couldn't have not had a rainbow if you, didn't, if you had rain. We all know that. I mean, ra rainbows are caused by the sun uh, being broken up by the prismatic effect of the water in the air. So if you've got rain and sunshine, you must have rainbow. But God is implying here, I wouldn't say it's stronger than that, but it's a pretty strong implication, that this is the beginning of rainbows. And I would say that it's the beginning of rainbows because it's the beginning of rain. That, the rain that came at the flood when the canopy broke down was the first rain that Noah had ever seen. And I could imagine him thinking when the next day he got a cloudy sky come over and it started raining, oh, here we go again, and run back in the ark ready for another lot. But God said it's not going to be that way anymore. That was one off. 
that the rain that came on the flood was one off. I will never again flood the earth. It's all come down now. It's not up there anymore. So the earth's atmosphere and environment is changed. The, the, the air pressure has gone down. The oxygen availability has come down. Everything's got smaller. Food has got scarcer. We're no longer in a paradise as we were. As we were. And age bands, as we've already said, begin to plummet. What about evidence for this? Well, it is absolutely everywhere. I mean, that's the Grand Canyon there, as you know. The earth is absolutely covered with sedimentary rocks. That means rocks that were laid down by water many of it full of dead animals. I mean, if you, if you wanted to say, well, what's the evidence? People say, there's no evidence that oh, the fossils, oh, well, we know about the fossils. No, you don't. The fossils were laid down in a massive cataclysmic circumstances. Normally, creatures do not get fossilized. They just, they just fall down and get eaten by other creatures. Here they were carried away so suddenly they were completely buried uh, by the strata and many of them are one on top of the Grand Canyon has got pancakes of sediment, one on top of the other, one on top of the other. Some of them massive uh, sedimentary uh, layers, a huge fossil graveyard, dinosaurs, mammoths, fish, sometimes they're all gathered in one big heap, creatures that would never even occupy the same uh, ecological niche are all packed together in big graveyards, huge burial places because they were swept along in the sediment. It would have been like it would have been like gloop, like you know. What, uh, towards the end, it gathered up so much sediment that the the continents were scoured clean of everything. It was all in the water, and as the water settled, it put down layers, and then it swept over that way, and then put down another layer. So it pancaked the layers one on top of the other, but over a very short space of time. Some of them are huge. I mean, the Coconino sandstone layer, which is one of those ones there, I think it's sort of about that one, but I'm not absolutely sure on that. Don't worry about it. It's one of them. It's, uh, it's 200,000 square miles. Well, I mean, what kind of, what kind of a thing? You, you're not going to get a little river overflowing, are you? You're going to make a sediment that's like 30, 40, 100 foot thick and 200,000 square miles. That's mass. That's global. The world is full of, of evidence of a global catastrophe everywhere, even to the tops of the mountains. The Himalayas are sedimentary. They've got seashells in them. So it looks as if the, the flood laid it all down and then the earth started to buckle. And many of the modern mountains, the newer mountains, came at that, uh, at that, uh, at that point. It's been, I read, read a book in the library called The Great Extinction. And it was, uh, I've tried to get it since and I can't find it, but it, it, it was, um, it was, it was not, not a Christian book at all, but it was, it was looking at, at what has happened, how many species have died. And they estimate that two-thirds of all living species died in one geologic epoch. And the book sets itself to work, including the dinosaurs. What happened? What, how did they all die out? And they come to the conclusion, having gone through loads of things, like some sort of a cosmic asteroid or collision or something like that, they come to the conclusion, the only thing that they can think of is that there was a dramatic change in the weather environment on the Earth. And that before this catastrophe, the Earth would have been tropical or subtropical down to about 50 degrees north and south latitude of the equator. In other words, that's just about near London. So London, and that's probably about Lydney, I think we're probably pretty similar. We would have been tropical or subtropical before the flood. How good's that, eh? Uh, but actually, most of the Earth would have been pretty temperate and comfortable, come to that. 
But that was the conclusion that they came to, that it was an abrupt change in the weather pattern of the Earth, and multitudes of creatures, of course, all died out. Massive deposits of coal and oil that are the, um, the fossil remains of massive amounts of death, of vegetation, of animal death, and everything else. So the evidence is massive. There is also this, which we mentioned before. The, that's, uh, that's, again, that's petrified. It's the exact uh, size, but there's some debate over it, but um, I've looked at, uh, I mean, I've got a whole talk on this, so I have to wait for another time. Um, but there, there is a lot of, of, of side evidence that, to indicate to me, certainly, that this is actually the Noah's Ark, that it was originally parked up higher on the hill and then got swept down the hill with a, um, a volcano that is now no longer there and swept it down in a kind of mud flurry down to the bottom, buried it, and there it was petrified until eventually it was uncovered through the course of time. So it's had a very interesting history, uh, if that be the Ark, and I think it is 5,000 feet up in the mountains, it is, so indicating something. There are something like 500 cultures in the world that carry the story of a flood. Many of them are amazingly similar to the biblical one. Uh, this is the Greek one, and I picked it because it's, it's probably the, one of the most similar. Some of them are a bit bizarre. You know, in one, in one flood thing, I think a South American one, uh, two people got in a canoe and, and landed on the thing, got to the top of a mountain and escaped that way. But it doesn't really begin to do justice how you saved all the creatures and everything else. But this one, the present race of men are not the first of humankind. There was another race which perished wholly. Interesting, calling it another race. We are of the second breed, which multiplied after the time of Deucalion. That's the Greek name for the Noah figure. As for the folk before the flood, it is said that they were exceedingly wicked and lawless, wherefore the great calamity befell them. A lot of this information got slowly lost and people forgot it. So the fountains of the deep were opened and the rain descended in torrents and the rivers swelled and the sea spread far over the land till there was nothing left but water. Quite, quite vivid. And all men perished, and Deucalion was the only man who by reason of his prudence and piety survived and formed the link between the first and the second race of men. The way in which he was saved was this. He had a great ark, same word even, and into it he entered with his wives and children. And as he was entering, there came to him pigs and horses and lions and serpents and all other land animals, all of them in pairs. He received them all, and they did him no harm. Nay, by God's help, there was great friendship between them, and they all sailed in one ark, so long as the flood prevailed on the earth. So we come to today. We live in a world that is a fallen world and judged. What then are the implications of this? For me, they're quite profound. <clears throat> and again, we may vary how much we want to take them on board. Uh, number one, uh, it, it seems to me to, to indicate very strongly the reliability and the truthfulness of the Bible. We live in a culture where the Bible is regarded largely as fairy stories by most people. Uh, when Debbie and I first came across these uh, insights 30 plus years ago, it revolutionised our view of the Bible. You know, we were, we were quite happy to say, well, that's a bit far-fetched, you know, I'm not sure I can go along with that. I thought, actually, it's not far-fetched at all. <laughs> when you know enough, it suddenly all makes total sense. So for me, it, it, it was a massive indication that the Bible is true. And if it be true in these things, way back when, in the, in the dawn of time, 
when there were hardly no living um, survivors to tell the story, how much more can we depend upon it uh, when it comes into the New Testament, the story of Jesus Christ and all that he came to see and do. Secondly, it, it answered for me the question, God is good. Uh, one of the biggest, um, the biggest objections that people have to God, um, particularly if you look at the likes of, of Richard Dawkins and even um, uh, Charles Darwin and uh, David Attenborough, I mean, I'm, they're not all in the same bucket, I understand that, but if you look at the likes of them, their biggest problem is with the pain and suffering in the world. And a lot of people will say, you, you tell me you're God, uh, well, look at all that, look at all that in the world. And, uh, and I, it was a revelation to I me, mean, I thought, actually, God didn't do this. We did this. We pulled down the house over ourselves. It was our disobedience, our foolishness, our rebelliousness that pulled the earth down. And God actually has been working on a rescue plan to pull us out and save us. And a stupid lot, we don't realise it, we just keep shaking our fists at heaven and say, why does God let this happen? If I ruled the world, it wouldn't be like that at all. I'm afraid it would, actually. <laughs> it's a trouble. So for me, it, it, it rescued my understanding of God. I realised that God loves us and continues to love us and sent Jesus to save us. Uh, the flood was necessary. It was surgery. It had to be because evil was so rampant on the earth that had God not done that, the whole human race would have died in ignominy. Nobody would have been saved whatsoever. So the, the, the flood was a holding operation until such time as the Saviour could come. Suffering then is of our own making. So we better get, get our head around it and deal with it. I mean, God loves us in it and he'll come and rescue us, but we've got no right to complain. Well, that's a thought, isn't it? Uh, fourthly, sin is serious. If, if it was that bad that God had to judge this in such a way, it seems to me to indicate that this is, this is pretty crucial stuff. Wouldn't, we need to be redeemed, all of us. We need to be saved. Otherwise, we have to face a holy God. But finally, the future is glorious. If this world is fallen and spoiled, it's still not bad. I mean, by the mercy of God, amazingly, you can wake up on a spring morning, you can look at a blue sky, you can see a mountain or a sunset, you can see the loveliness of the creatures and the animals that God has put upon the earth. It is still beautiful, but if this is fallen, what must it have been like in the beginning, before it was fallen? What, was it, what would it have been like for paradise in the beauty of it, the sunshine, the loveliness, the air that would have been exhilarating and beautiful and glorious? Just to, just to be alive, what would it have been like? And if it was like that in the beginning, which fell, what would it be like when the Bible says God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth? What's it going to be like then? His final solution. Well, I, I can't wait. Well, I can't wait. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm no doubt in my mind that I has not seen and nor is ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. And God that has worked through history still works now. He's working on and into the future. And there are signs that the world is moving towards its final consummation. So we need to be ready. So these things were all things, implications that struck me as I went through it. Good. Well, we've sort of We've pretty well finished within the time that I allotted to myself. Bless you all for sitting there patiently. We're going to have a question time. We've got some slips again like we had last week. If you've got a question, it worked, I think, pretty well last week. Uh, we'll give you out some slips. We've got, we'll find a pen, I'm sure. We'll have a cup of tea, have a break, and then come back with some questions, and if we can, I'll answer them.
just a bit of forward notice. We've, we've got two more weeks to do of this series. Um, and, I mean, in pencil, we're thinking about the next series, which is all focusing on Jesus. Why he came into the world, what was the cross all about. Somebody once asked me a question, how can somebody dying 2,000 years ago affect me? Um, so, you know, we try to answer seriously those sorts of questions. But, I mean, to some extent, we want to we get some sense of whether this particular course that we've done has been helpful. So if you let, let us know whether you think it's been helpful, that, that would most appreciate that. We're also going to try and get feedback when we put it online and so on and so on. So obviously we don't want to be flogging a dead horse and you know, ploughing along and uh, doing it if it's not uh, scratching where people are itching. So uh, do let us know as we go along. Next week we'll be looking at uh, the, the character of God. What, what is God like? Most people have got their ideas, what they think God is like. So we'll be actually look and see what the Bible says about that. From now onwards, we'd be a little bit more biblical. I've, I've tried to establish that the, biblic, the Bible is a, is a reliable authority, um, not only in these original things, but actually all the way through. So we're going to try and do a bit of an examination of some of the things that it says. And uh, so next week will be, uh, what is God like? Okay, here we go. Question number one. Did the flood cause all dinosaurs to be extinct or will they still alive after? Answer, no. They didn't all go extinct. Many did. I mean, there would have been uh, dinosaurs on the ark, probably not 120 foot long ones. <laughs> they would have probably taken the young and babies. Um, and, uh, but uh, certainly there's every evidence that they survived after. But of course the, the climate was very hostile for large reptiles. So many of them would have died out fairly quickly. Some would have survived in warmer countries. And there are some still that, you know, crocodiles are, are pretty much dinosaur type creatures. Alligators and so on. So certain ones, uh, kimono dragons. Uh, even it may be things like the Loch Ness Monster and other myths. Uh, of dinosaurs indicates that there was once survival in deep pockets of water that managed to survive after the flood, marine ones and so on. So generally it's reckoned that a lot of the uh, legends of dragons which many countries have are simply uh, the legends, uh, the myths surrounding uh, dragon-like creatures, i.e. dinosaurs. They didn't have the word dinosaurs in ancient times, so the word dragon, you can generally read dinosaurs. So they did survive, but uh, it was an increasingly hostile environment, and so they didn't, uh, they didn't, the bigger ones certainly didn't, as did the giant creatures in many, uh, many mammals as well. Second, is that, that got that? Second question, did we become predators post-fall or flood? That's really quite interesting. My own suspicion is, I can't be absolutely certain, uh, is that uh, predators began to take, predation started to happen before the flood, but only limited. It was still a, a, a good environment, there was still the vapour canopy, there was still plenty of vegetation. I mean, why would you go chasing food if it was growing freely on a tree? So I suspect it was only s slowly. Certain creatures were more adapted to killing other creatures, as we know, um, and therefore they may well have started to uh, preempt God's permission. Did man, I guess disobedient man, probably did. 
Um, but God actually gave permission after the flood so that those that loved him could also eat meat. So I suspect it was happening already in small measure. Most creatures, of course, are still vegetarian, it has to be said, even now. Um, and uh, it, after the flood, however, it became much more so because the earth now, I mean, half the earth only grows grass. You know, what are you, what are you going to eat if you live on the steppes of Mongolia? You know, you've got to keep cows and eat one every now and then. That's all you can do. <coughs> Who or what created the creator? That's a bit like the question, how black is white? Well, you know, white isn't black at all. It's, it, the, con the, the question's contradictory within itself. So the creator is the creator. If anybody created the creator, they would be the creator. The definition of God is the original uncaused cause of everything. There has to be some, I mean, all of life that we know is cause and effect. Everything has to have an adequate cause. You know, a baby has to come from a mother, etc., etc. A chicken comes from an egg, and so on and so on. And that has to come from another chicken, and so on and so on, down the line. There always has to be an adequate cause for the effect that, that comes. But somewhere, for the whole thing, you have to have a cause that doesn't need a cause, that is its own cause. And the Bible says of God that God has, it is the capacity of God that he has life in him. I mean, Jesus actually said that the Father has granted to him, the Son, to have life in himself. We don't have life in it. We are derived. We receive it. We live by God's grace, by mercy, every day. But, but God has life in himself like a burning fire that doesn't go out. So he is the original uncaused cause. Nobody created him. He is the creator. Okay, a lot of scientists think that there is not enough evidence for a worldwide flood. What would you say to them? Well, I think there is. <laughs> I mean, obviously, everybody has to weigh their evidence, don't they? But uh, certainly, if you, if, I mean, if you take the, the Grand Canyon as a case in point, it's mi one mile deep of sediment. What did that? Now, the, the, the normal, the traditional geologic view is that those layers were laid down over millions of years, but there's no evidence of any gap between them. There is no worm burrows. There are no tree roots. There's no biology in them. They are completely sterile layers of sediment that have just been laid down. If there was millions of years be between them, where are the river valleys? Where is the evidence of that kind of time existing between the layers? There isn't any. Um, if you look at the chalk of, on the, uh, the White Cliffs of Dover, it is completely unsullied by uh, earth, vegetation or anything, as though massive quantities of these uh, creatures, sea creatures it's believed, were, were gathered and piled in whopping great big piles and deposited there. So I would have said that the, the evidence for a, a global flood is global. But sometimes the thing's so, and, it, and the fact that it's so full of dead animals, you know, we've actually put, we've created a mythology to explain them all and said it all happened over millions of years and they all sort of fell to the bottom of a lake and died there and so on. But there's no explanation for how you get such large quantities all in one place. It all did it. Uh, so for me, the, the evidence is startling. And there are loads of books now that, that actually deal with this if any want to pursue that any further. 
Okay, question number however many we're up to. How did the animals in the original climate adapt to atmospheric change, e.g. polar bears, penguins, etc.? Uh, my own view would be, and I think it was probably the general view, that, the, that the, the creatures that were in the ark were stock creatures, that they hadn't ramified nearly as much as they have today, that God created all the original uh, kinds with such a massive genetic... Uh, stock uh, that from that stock you could you could develop and adapt loads of different um, plans and body types in order to fit the environment. So there, pro there wouldn't have been, I suspect, polar bears. Polar bears are, are not that much different to brown bears. You know, they've just they've just adapted to the different environment. If you start to you know remix them again, you start finding they revert back to being something somewhere in the middle. So as as populations, just with human beings, human beings were the same. I mean, human beings had within them from the beginning huge, rich variety of different genes. But as people scattered after the Tower of Babel and the different people groups spread, different racial characteristics developed. So some people that went further south developed, you know, the, the ones got much darker skin in order to cope with it. Uh, if Europeans had gone that way, they would have contacted um, vitamin D deficiency and rickets because they wouldn't have had enough sunlight. Yeah, I mean, lots of dark-skinned people that come to Europe find they have to give themselves vitamin D supplements in order to cope with the fact that their darker skin doesn't let enough sun sunlight in. See what I'm saying? So it was as the different people spread to different niches, God's amazing provision in genetic flexibility enabled us to adapt to the different niches we were in. And so it gave the appearance of, you know, hard, firm barriers. But it wouldn't have been so in the beginning. It may be that, that Noah's children were all different colours, for all I'm aware. And certainly it could have been true that the, there was much more variety among the animals that were in the ark and then could spread into all the different niches that they subsequently came. Now what was God doing before he created earth and what was his point in doing so? Well that's a good one. Uh, God, God was being before he created earth um, and as far as we can understand, there was Father, Son and Holy Spirit that all loved each other and had great family time. I don't think they went on trips or stuff like that, but I'm sure they had great family time and great fellowship. But you could say maybe from the dawn of time, God was actually planning us. Beyond that, I can't really say, but I shall ask one day when I stand there before him. Well, you do, yeah. You have the heavenly host, you've got angels. So there would have been a fair old community there, um, uh, worshipping and rejoicing. If God is creating a new heaven and a new earth, <clears throat> and the original design was paradise, why tear it down in the first place? Right, well, better, a better, better deal with that one. Uh, well, only because that God's planning an even better paradise where righteousness dwells, where there's no possibility of a fall. I mean, the original paradise had one area of vulnerability, and that was us. Uh, we had freedom of choice. We had to have freedom of choice, because that was the plan. God wanted our love, and you can't... You can't I mean, God can't say, you, you will love me, or I will slap you so hard until you do. Right? You know, you would think that's not very loving. 
in order for love to be real, it has to be free. So God had to create us with the freedom to either refuse him or accept him. So you might say that was the one weakness of the first paradise. It was also its great strength, but it wasn't permanent. What I believe God will do now in the future one will create a new heaven and a new earth that will far exceed what it once was. And the Bible says, eye has not seen and nor ear heard and nor is it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. So we've, we've seen nothing yet. And all the sorrow and the suffering that the human race has gone through in order to get there will be worth it one day, I believe. Now there will be sadness, I guess, in some ways. The second part of that question was why would the flood drop the temperature of the earth? Well, I think primarily because of the, the taking away of the vapour canopy. You remember we said the vapour canopy kept the earth um, uh, uniformly warm. It also will be the change in the, um, uh, uh, the Earth's axis uh, that would have done it, bringing in extremes. So as we know, uh, when the winter comes, the sun has to go through much longer bit of atmosphere to get to us, a much steeper angle, and, it's, and it makes a very dramatic difference to the temperature of, of, the, of the planet. So all of those things came after the flood, and uh, I think it was a sort of the pendulum effect, that the immediate effect of the complete change was to swing the pendulum to the other extreme. And uh, the effect of the warm ocean combined with the cold atmosphere created massive amounts of snow forming year after year glaciers. It's thought that the, the Ice Age could have lasted 500 years or more after the flood and then slowly settled down. And I mean, interestingly, we're looking at global warming today. It may be that it's just the Earth still warming up after the flood. Maybe. Some have suggested that. Now, any other questions? Yeah, Conway. There was a definite sort of concerted plan to get rid of the Bible as an explanation for all things. And uh, <clears throat> this is uh, the, the, um, the passage that uh, Conway spoke to, and we'll close with this. First of all, he says, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming he promised? In other words, they will say, what's this rubbish about Jesus coming back? This is not going to happen. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, they imply a uniformitarian evolutionary worldview. Everything's the same as it's always been. That's where you get the millions of years from. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. So he says people actually will disbelieve in the future because they disbelieve the past. The two most disbelieved books in the Bible are Genesis and Revelation, the beginning and the end, for various reasons that people have got. And if you, do, if you don't feel, don't believe that God actually acted in the past, why should you expect him to act in the future? And so the human race will stumble onto an uncertain future with Armageddon facing him right in the face and still will not be ready for it unless he's very careful. So there is an urgency about this, I think. 
you know, to get this true in our own hearts and minds. Good. Well, bless you all. We're going to pray together and uh, I'll send you happily on your way. If anybody got any questions that I haven't adequately answered, do come to me afterwards. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're the living God, that you've been here with us tonight. I I'm probably didn't get it all right. Lots of things that I need to learn. But I thank you, Lord, that, uh, that as we look at your word, it does make sense. It feels like revelation, certainly to me. It feels like you've made it plain to us. And so we pray that you'd help us to process it, work it through, come to our conclusions and find our way forward. So help us, Lord, as we're seeking to answer the questions of the universe and most of all, our place in it and your activity in it. So we pray this prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Amen. Bless you all. Oh, thank you. Amen.